All right, well, thank you very much for coming out. This is the inaugural lecture in what I'm calling uh, the history of philosophy in 16 questions. And there's an invisible asterisk by the number 16 because it turns out there's 17 weeks in this summer. So apparently there's a 17th question that I don't know what it is yet. So there's a mystery question. And two, some of the questions will occur more than once throughout the history of philosophy. So a couple of them will be the same question uh, that is revisited at a later date. Um, if you are interested in this series, we're going to do one section per week. They each section is standalone, so if you can only make one, that's great. If you can make all 16, that's great. At the end of the lecture, we'll have questions, and I encourage people to do follow-up discussions amongst themselves, because we have the space till 8. I'm only going to talk for about 45 minutes to an hour. I'm not talking for two hours. There's no way. But the space is for you after that. Um, also, if you look at the flyer, I included some questions there that, that for you to ponder after the lecture. So I'm kind of giving you homework, basically. So it's not just questions to be explored, it's questions for to ponder as we go from uh, lecture to lecture. Also, any lecture that you miss will be online. I put them up on YouTube. Um, and if you go there, you, you, know, you can hear everything. You can hear my, my earlier lectures, and you can subscribe to YouTube channel, and then you won't miss it. So again, thanks very much for coming out. So this is lecture number one in the, six, the history of philosophy in 16 questions. Question one is, what the hell happened? Now this is a very important question, um, and I'm trying to get a, a, how to come to grips with this question. Because if you think about it, where you ended up um, in the history, uh-oh, we've blocked the door, haven't we? Let's, let's move that door over. Learning logistics. There we go. Can we sneak in? Okay, there we go. Better leave that open so people can sneak in and out. Um, so, if I put my arms out, my I, my arms are ridiculously wide or long for the my height, or I'm short for my arms. But it's actually it's about 75 inches. But we're going to round that to 70 inches. And, I, and, and, I, and everybody put your arms out and hit your neighbors, right? So this will give you, this is going to be a timeline of human uh, uh, development, intellectual history and human development. So the idea here is how long has humanity been sort of thinking, as it were? So if I put my arms out, and you can get, use yourself as a measure, uh, and every inch is 30,000 years, then my left tip is 2.1 million years ago, rounding a bit. And 2.1 million years ago is when our earliest uh, forebears, our, our, our distant relatives, Homo habilis and Homo erectus, but at this point we're mostly Homo habilis, um, started using tools. Now this is an amazing innovation in history. Now there's some debate about whether tool use actually comes earlier, which it may have, but basically, by 2.1 million years ago, we're really sure that humans were using tools. Uh, but again, this is uh, ancient ancestors of humans are the ones that never write, never invite you over for Christmas. Um, but for the next roughly, uh, say, 1.7 million years, which is now we're going all the way from my fingertip, roughly to, you know, sort of mid-arm elbow, tool use improves very slowly and very slightly. 
there is no great huge leap forward which means that our ancestors were evolving, they're developing increased capacity to think and to manipulate their environment and to manipulate tools, but there's no you know, leap. Then about 300,000 years ago, Homo erectus um, shows up and maybe uh, Homo sapiens, although most people put the date for us later than 300,000 years ago, and there is a marked dramatic increase in the quality of the tools, but notice, two million years of tool use, and we're all the way over to about you know, nine inches. So almost to the palm of your hand. So this is, this is when I say, what the hell happened? Notice for, for, for a million, 800,000 years, relative stagnation, some improvements, but relative stagnation. 300,000 years ago, you get a significant improvement in all sorts of tool use and the qualities of tools and how they're being used and what's going on. Now this is important because it means something mentally and socially is taking place. And then that sort of goes on till about 50,000 years ago. So now, now 50,000 years, we're just sort of like the last knuckle, maybe not even, maybe a little past the last knuckle on my finger. So again, two million years of tool use, 50,000 years ago, boom, everything, art, we start getting sophisticated carvings, massive increase in the tool, this is all from the archeological record, massive increase in the sophistication of tools, all the evidence of complex social hierarchy and social communities being developed, and this is happening, it, you, are, if you think evolutionarily, this happens really fast. Some people say, oh, well, maybe it took 20,000 years to happen, it's like, okay, it, yeah, over two million years for they to get this dramatic change in, in a few thousand years is extraordinary. Nobody knows what happened, by the way. So 50,000 years ago, explosion. Everything we live in, satellites, computers, electricity, the internet, fine cider, is an echo of that moment. We are the inheritors of whatever transformation took place in those few thousand years, an incredibly short period of time ago. And then if you go further, again, keep the timeline in mind, almost to the end of your finger, about 10,000 years ago, those crafty boogers, our relatives, came up with agriculture. Now this is a total game changer, because agriculture allows you to cram a bunch of people together in a relatively small space and feed them. And this allows for specialization. And once you have specialization, all of the sort of panoply of civilization begins to develop, and it begins to develop really quickly. So that by the time you hit three to 5,000 years ago, we'll call it 5,000 years ago, you get the early cuneiform civilizations, and you get the first incident that has survived in the historical record of human philosophy. But when we talk about the history of philosophy, we're talking about this just extraordinarily short period of time, 5,000 years of recorded human philosophy, at most, that's, that's being generous, but 5,000 years of recorded human philosophy. And so, but the people who are doing the philosophy, us, have at least two million years of evolutionary history 
So I, well, I'm gonna come back to this over and over again. Our ancestors started using tools two million years ago. We started doing philosophy 5,000 years ago. This is why philosophy is such a wreck. Because we did not evolve to do philosophy. We evolved to do all kinds of cool stuff. Philosophy is apparently not one of them. And so I think we're just terrible at it. I think in another million years, we're gonna be like really good at philosophy. And so, it, it, but, but because we're living in this sort of evolutionary misfit between how we evolved, the, our, our intellectual, tool-using, manipulative, environmental, interactive selves, and then the sudden capacity that develops roughly around 50,000 years ago and then really takes off when you get agriculture and writing, again, 5,000 years ago, for the writing bit. And, and, and so, yeah, we're not doing that great in some ways. And people go, oh, we have these problems, we struggle, you know, oh, all the terrors in the world, all that. I'm like, no, this is incredible. We are hairless monkeys smashing things with rocks. The fact that we've achieved anything is astonishing. It really is incredible, people. I mean, it, it just, to, to, that's one of the things I want to explore is how did this happen? How in this incredibly short period of time did we go from you know, simple stone tool using to, again, the first art that we have roughly 30,000 years ago, there's a picture in, in the handout, this is about 30,000 years ago, um, is extraordinarily beautiful. It's so, in fact, it's so beautiful that if you try to reproduce it, you just feel bad. Because you want to think, oh, those people 30,000 years ago didn't know what they're doing. It turns out, yeah, they really did. They're really good artists. The pottery work is amazing. The carving is amazing. The stonework is amazing. The tool making is extraordinary. From that moment on, we've been impressive. But again, we're, we're struggling to, to put the pieces together of a world that we evolved in versus the world that's existed for the last six, seven, eight thousand years. And trying to think that out is the central problem of philosophy. So that's what I want to say. But always keep that timeline in mind, by the way, because if you, I, I, want, I like to use your body because it's a good reference point. Um, but if you ever see this timeline, it's always broken up into even segments, Paleolithic, Middle Paleolithic, Neolithic. And that's completely misrepresentative because it's all old Paleolithic. It's all just, you know, it's two million years of nothing and then 300,000 years of explosion. But that looks stupid on the page because you have this big blank run. And so they always compress it and it misrepresents what's actually happened. So second, what is philosophy? And, and I think key here is to distinguish philosophy from A, religion, and B, just other kinds of thinking. So first, religion starts with an answer. The gods, God, the magic, whatever, the spirit. And then everything works backwards from that answer. Philosophy, and this is key, starts with a question, hence the history of philosophy and 16 questions. The beginning of philosophy is saying, I don't know what's going on. What the hell is going on? That really is, you can't do philosophy, <clears throat> excuse me, until you can bring yourself to ask those sorts of fundamental questions. And it's only under very peculiar and historically unique circumstances that we're able to ask those questions. Um, and philosophy just isn't thinking in general because most of the thinking we do, although we're pretty good at thinking, uh, particularly comparatively, um, the competition isn't that stiff. Uh, you know, it's us versus the plants. Um, but the, the, the thing that philo distinguishes 
philosophy from just normal thinking is normal thinking is focused on immediate problem solving. I'm, I'm in a dangerous situation, I need to achieve something, I want to build something. How do I do that? Now this is fine thinking and it's very helpful and, and we're relatively good at it as humans. Philosophical thinking again starts with a question rather than a, necessarily a concrete problem or a short-term goal. And in fact it often starts with a question that has no immediate concrete uh, resolution. There's no reason in some ways to ask the question. But that's what it is. So the first question is, what the hell happened that allowed us to begin to think philosophically? Well, number one is whatever happened 50,000 years ago, and nobody can decide, by the way. This is, this is an open argument in archaeology. All kinds of speculation. Was it a new layer developed in the brain? Was it a ex sudden expansion in the neocortex? Was it an environmental change that allowed for larger groups to get together? Was it you know, the discovery of beer? Some people say psychoactive drugs. You know, whatever, who knows, dogs. Some people really point to the domestication of animals as key to, to this leap in human intellectual capacity. So far, open question, nobody knows. But the second thing that we do know, and this is where we're gonna start here, is to do philosophy you need a little bit of freedom. You need somebody not to shoot you if you ask a question. Historically speaking, this is very rare. This is so rare that in fact today, if you live in China or Russia and you go, man, I really have questions about the way our country is run, you get in trouble. There are very large barriers put against you being able to ask those sorts of questions in any meaningful and powerful way. And it's always important to remember that Socrates, one of the big heroes of this sort of inquiry, was put to death for asking precisely these kinds of questions. Um, and so you need this historical circumstance in which there's a large enough polity for, and freedom and opportunity for people to sort of stand up and go, hey, What's going on? What does this mean? And so I want to look at, again, the first recorded historical evidence of philosophical thinking. Now, it doesn't mean there wasn't earlier philosophical thinking, it just means we don't have a historical surviving record. The problem is writing doesn't survive that well, could be a few thousand years earlier, but the one that we have comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I have sort of a longish excerpt here, but I'll, I'll just read some of the key elements of it. Um, and so, by the way, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh uh, has a friend in Kendu who, who is killed, and this makes him very depressed. And he goes on a, a journey to try to discover immortality. And this does not work out that well for him. And he's sort of coming back from a failing in that journey, and he runs into this wise woman, who's sort of, she's a kind of a deity, but just like, a, think of a mortal wise woman, that sort of uh, Siduri, that's the character that she is. And so Siduri greets uh, Gilgamesh, and then Siduri said to him, if you are the Gilgamesh who seized <clears throat> and killed the bull of heaven, who killed the watchman of the cedar forest, who, who overthrew Humbaba that lived in the forest and killed the lions in the passes in the mountains, why are your cheeks so starved and why is your face so drawn? Why is despair in your heart and your face like the face of one who has made a long journey? Yes, why is your face burned from heat and cold? And why do you come here wandering over the pastures in search of the wind? So first... That repetition, repetitious pattern lets us know that this was an oral tale that was subsequently written down. So even though this is, goes back 5,000 years, we know the oral tale probably goes back further. 
So this really is the remembrance of a very ancient story, maybe six or 7,000 years old. And Gilgamesh answered her, and why should my cheeks not be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart and my face is the face of one who has made a long journey. It was burned with heat and cold. Why should I not wander over the pastures in search of the wind? My friend, my younger brother, he who hunted the wild ass of the wilderness and the panther of the plains, nay, my younger brother who seized and killed the bull of heaven and overthrew Humbaba and the cedar forest, my friend who was very dear to me and who endured dangers beside me, Enkidu, my brother, who I loved, the end of mortality has overtaken him. I wept for him seven days and nights till the worm fastened on him. Because of my brother, I'm afraid of death. Because of my brother, I stray through the wilderness and cannot rest. But now, young woman, maker of wine, since I have seen your face, do not let me see the face of death, death which I dread so much. So here it is. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of death. Human condition. I've, I've tried to overcome it. My best friend is dead. I'm in despair. I'm heartbroken. You who have immortality, help. Do not let me see the face of death. And again, her answer here is pretty much the first recorded moment of, of true, deep philosophical thinking. She answered, Gilgamesh, where are you hurrying to? You will never find that life for which you are looking. When the gods created man, they allotted to him death, but life they retained in their own keeping. As for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day. Dance and be merry, feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh, bathe yourself in water, cherish the child that holds your hand, and make your wife happy in your embrace. For this, too, is the lot of man. So, faced with that desire for something else, an answer from the gods, the gods do not answer him. They say, no, you have to choose mortality. You have to live a mortal life. There is nothing else. Notice this is essentially the end of the usefulness of the gods. There is no promise of immortality. There is no higher life that you're going to achieve. By the way, part of the importance of the story is Gilgamesh has killed several gods at this point. He's, he's been wandering around killing God. So it has this very strong notion of the mortal at war with the immaterial, the immortal, the spiritual. It comes up over and over again in the story. And the answer is not, oh, there is salvation for you. There is liberation for you. Oh, you will be reborn. Oh, there is immortality. Oh, there is a heaven or there is a hell or there is. No, there's nothing, nothing for you. How do you face that? Love your children. Make your wife happy. Sing, dance, and be merry. For that, too, is the lot of man. This is this, is this incredible, like, early notion of beginning to peel away from philosophy. Because if you can't please the gods and achieve immortality or something like it, how should you live? What should you do? Why should you do it? Again, 5,000 years ago, the question is asked. And the question is answered. Now, importantly in the story, Gilgamesh ignores this completely. 
right? He's like, no, no, I'm not going for that. And he gets, uh, he's been trying to become immortal. He fails a couple of times. Uh, by the way, this is where you get the flood narrative. Um, and then he gets this uh, sort of thistle leaf of some kind. Translation, of course, difficult, different translations, something, but some sort of spiny leaf that will give him eternal youth, which is distinguished from immortality. I'm never quite sure how that works, but it is distinguished from immortality. Uh, but he loses it. A snake takes it from him. And so finally he gets home and says, well, this is a well-built city and we can have a well-regulated society with gardens and temples and places of joy and that's what we should do. And so the Ark of Gilgamesh, when he starts at the very beginning of the story, he's totally out of control. He's, he's rampaging, he's raping everybody, he's killing everybody. By the end of the story, He's had to face human mortality in the face, death of his friend in Kedu, begging the gods for life, failing at every turn, and then to return home and decide, okay, what should we do now? And that is the beginning. It's, it's both the first recorded one we have, and I don't know if there's a better one that we have. I mean, we got different, we have all kinds of you know, manifestations of this and it'll get more complicated and subtle and in different allocations and different questions, but boy, a lot of the core of the human philosophical narrative is right there from the first one. So the Epic of Gilgamesh is extraordinary for that because it's 5,000 years old and it's, you, it's like it was written yesterday in some ways. And so that question is, wow, what should we do? which we're gonna address in later episodes, but in this one I wanna say, what the hell happened that allowed us to actually ask this question? And I think this is often overlooked because it just seems natural to us to be able to do that. It is not in any way natural or necessary or even good. Because when you ask questions, invariably what you get are different answers. And so when you think about philosophy, people go, oh, look how much progress science has made. Look how much progress music has made. Look how much progress athletes have made. And philosophy seems to be stuck in the same problems that it was stuck with several thousand years ago. Why is that? It's, well, because you ask questions and you get a lot of different answers. And then that creates more questions that create more questions that create more. So it doesn't, it's not this notion of progress. It's not that we haven't made any progress. I think we've made some. But it's a, it's a whole different notion. Because you aren't really trying to get answers. You're trying to get more questions. Because philosophy is the notion of what don't we know? And how do we get about exploring it? So again, what the hell happened? Again, hard to know, but some of the things that we know must be true. By the way, we all do this in our own lives. So, so you are mirroring the, the, the arc of human history and human civilization in your own lives. So when you were born, we're helpless. We know nothing. We're completely at the, the uh, control of our environment, our parents, because human children are worthless. This is one of the great things about, like, if you see almost all other infants when they're born, they're ready to go. Give them a day, two days, a week, and they're like taking care of themselves. Uh, we take uh, forever 
is about 25 years before the human brain is fully developed, give or take, 25 years. And it can still change, which is remarkable. And so we spend this huge amount of time in which we're helpless. We're essentially captives. We're being brainwashed. Right? We don't, and it's necessary, by the way. It's, it's, you know, it, it is brainwashing. But what else are you supposed to do with kids? They need a language while well, you teach them your language. They need to know how to do things while well, you teach them how to do things the way you do it. And then at some point, by the way, these are the teenage years, uh, we, we begin to wake up. We begin to look around and go, you know what? It ain't necessarily so. The way we do things, the way I've been trained, the way I've seen the world is not necessarily the only, even the most correct, most satisfying. And this is the worst thing that happens to you. Because then, then all this conflict begins. Plus we're filled with hormones. It's great that our minds and our hormones just develop simultaneously so that you're trying to think with something that's overwhelmed with chemicals. It's great. It's a great combination. Not that helpful, but, but fun. Um, so, so, so you're trying to think this stuff out. You're learning to think, by the way. And notice this is exactly what happened in ancient history. For most of ancient history, even after you get agriculture, like forget pre-agriculture, when you get agriculture, everybody is a slave or a boss. To do philosophy, you need somebody in between. Because bosses know what they want, they want things their way. Slaves don't have a choice until they overthrow the boss and they become the boss. It's just a perfectly clear cycle. But you need a society large enough for there to be people standing around in the interstices between this going, hey, wait a second, maybe this doesn't have to be this way. Maybe the gods really don't have anything to offer us. See, this is extraordinary. Even today, it's somewhat extraordinary and controversial. 5,000 years ago, this was a good way to get killed. Um, because now you're threatening everything that's going on by asking the question. And the second you ask the question, what's going on? What the hell happened? Whoever is vested in what's going on is threatened. It's, it's a necessary parallel that you, you it just has to be because if I say oh this is the way things work this is the way things works and somebody says well that's not how they work if I'm invested in them working that way I have to say look you're wrong shut up sit down but the authors of Gilgamesh had enough power and enough mental opportunity to begin to look at their world and ponder and go hey we sacrifice to the gods but we don't get immortality we worship, and all this terrible stuff happens to us. We do what the king says, and he kills us. Uh, um, and, and all of that is, is, is in there. And this is, these are the questions we have to ask. And so just as we've matured, the, the civilization's matured. And, and they've gone through these repeated phases throughout history where once you come up with the answers... You stop asking questions. What's the best form of government? For a long, long time, we said American democracy, by far the best form of government. Nothing better, perfectly functioning, fine machine. Most of us were raised with that story. It's a fine story, fictional story, but a fine one. 
And then suddenly, for reasons, you know, people are beginning to question this. They're like, perhaps there are problems in this story. And it's a very challenging and unnerving moment when you start going, hmm, maybe the story isn't entirely true. Because now you have to ask, of course, what is true? And so what the hell happened to help us make this transition from basically tool-using apes to people looking around going, do my friends have to die? Can I live forever? How should I live? Is the capacity, both socially, educationally, to begin to reflect on the human condition and ask, what, how, when? And so I put some questions there at the back. If you, if you look on the back of the sheet, These are some of the questions that come up in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, what makes us human? Now, it's not, I'm sh not sure they give you a good answer, but for those of you who are interested in the transition from pre-agricultural humanity to um, agricultural civilization, that narrative is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. They remembered this. They saw it. They knew it. There was going on around them. And the, it, Gilgamesh's friend is a wild man who still lives with the deer. And he is educated and domesticated and brought into the fold of civilization to be Gilgamesh's friend. But when this happens, he loses contact with the natural world. And he's really upset. And it, it robs him of his strength for a while. He feels cut off from the animals who now flee from him in terror. But that part of that whole narrative is the question of, well, what makes us human? What is the difference between a savage or an animal and a civilized human? In the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's bread, perfume, uh, a prostitute, and fine clothes, and being clean. That's what makes you human. If you lack those things, you're not really human. This is explored in many, but we still that this is still a tough question. Another question that's raised in the Epic of Gilgamesh is what do dreams mean? So it's one of these things that keep coming back, keep coming back. Freud, of course, famously talked about it. Now people are continually interested in this question of what do dreams mean because they're so weird. Uh, and in the ancient world, they dreamt a lot more and a lot more clearly than we do. Electric light, wonderful in many ways, kills your dream life. You, you can run an experiment, uh, uh, get rid of electric light, just live by candlelight for a while, um, and try to cut basically all sugar out of your diet. The ancient world had almost no sugars in it. Um, and by God, I guarantee you, you will start having dreams that will blow your mind. You will go back and understand why almost all ancient literature is obsessed by dreams. Because they were like hallucinating every night. I mean, it is amazing. So it's a little experiment you can run. But we all still dream to a certain extent and then raise the question of what do they mean? Is it something outside trying to communicate with us? Is it something inside trying to communicate with us? Is it totally insignificant? It doesn't mean nothing. But it's another one of those questions that, has, that needs an answer. Because we dream. And so like, 
what? I think our answer is to like ignore it, right? It's like we have dreams and we're like, we're just going to pretend generally as a society, not necessarily individually, but as a society, have a dream, pretend like that didn't happen, right? That's just nothing to do with me and I'll go about my life and pretend. The ancient world was like really interested in this. And, uh, you know, I think it's sort of odd that we sort of pretend like these things don't happen to us. Um, why all this art? So again, as soon as you get anything like modern humans, you get fantastic art. Not crappy art, not third-rate art, not kindergarten art. Fantastic art. Right out of the gate. And so people always talk about, oh, what makes us human? Go back to the other question. I think one of the answers has to include something to do with the arts. Also something to do with making stone tools. Because not only did we make better stone tools at this explosion, we started making beautiful stone tools. They really started to clearly love their tools. And we still have this today, right? People love their workshops. They're all beautifully aligned and the nice, the, the, like the ch- I was using a chisel today that has this beautiful wood handle on it. I'm like, oh, that's so, it's unnecessary, but it's just so nice. That goes all the way, we were doing that with stone tools 50,000 years ago. This is, this is, but the, 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 the love of the beauty, of the heft of the object, of art, has got to be at least part of that answer, but it's not clear why. Nobody knows, by the way. This is an open question in philosophy called the question of aesthetics, so just feel free to jump in, right? Just, you know, think about that, because it really does need pondering. It's not necessary in theory. In practice, it turns out totally necessary. Um, that we really do like to make things, and we like to make beautiful things, theoretically worthless things. So if you read evolutionary biologist stuff, they're always talking about you know, survival and efficiency. and you know, Yeah, no. Humans have been wasting time and energy doing daft shit since day one. That's how you know you have homo sapiens, is because they're doing something stupid and pointless, and you can't figure out why. Stone monuments, by the way. I know. Let's take huge stones and set them upright, and then we'll put another stone on top of that stone. That'll be totally fun. What? What? Are, what? Wait, what? Why? I mean, but, but really, this is a crucial philosophical question. It's clearly part of what makes us humans, piling stones at some level. And, but now we're very much more sophisticated. We made skyscrapers. That's totally different. You know, the, you know, but the, we just love how how tall can we build it? Tallest building in the world, biggest building in the world. Right? It's, it's, I mean, clearly this is what they're doing at some level. Those guys have a bigger pyramid than we do. That earlier uh, pharaoh had a bigger pyramid, so I want the biggest pyramid. And so you get like the pyramid arms race. And nothing is less useful than a pyramid, by the way. It's just the dumbest use of materials ever invented. And there's no internal space. It's crazy, but human and cool. And so again, trying to figure this out, these aren't the questions we usually ask, but why? Why put a man on the moon? They keep trying to come up with reasons for this. There is no good reason for this except for it's totally cool. What a great challenge. We did it, which is crazy. Now they're like, let's start a Mars colony. And people are like, why? And they kind of come up with all these explanations about, oh, well, we have to leave the planet at some point and you know, expanding population. No, no, no. It's like Mars colony, totally cool. You look up at the night sky, you see the little orange dot, and you think, there's people living there. That would be cool. And apparently that's all you need, to spend billions and billions of dollars to do it. And so why not? You know? Uh, Should I fear death? 
this is right back to the, right, should we be afraid of death? Is it, is it a bad thing? It seems like a bad thing. I'm always convinced that we're not so afraid of death for ourselves. We just hate to see people we love die. Because that's just no good. It's just a total bitch. It really is. Mortality, that part of mortality is, is just awful. Uh, and so I, so I think it's often, people think, oh, it's not me dying. I think, yeah, I, I often think we're more egalitarian than that. That we just really are going to miss the people that we love, and so we don't want them to die, so we're anti-mortality. But, you know, should we be? Should we fear death? It's, it's right there at core. It's right there at the beginning of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And our early ancestors were clearly struggling with this from day one. They buried their dead in all these weird ways. Again, not efficient ways. Not any system that makes sense if you're just trying to bury people. But clearly, we're ponder we've been pondering about death for as long as we've been around. Most other animals don't do this. We, but we really like, ah, well, let's point them a certain orientation. or Let's bury them with a bunch of gold. Or, or let's put all the weapons of the people they've killed in there. Or let's bury, uh, you know, some cultures, let's bury them with their families. Because, you know, their man dies. What else does anybody have to do to be alive, right? You know, that sort of just that attempt to do something. How do we address this? How do we respond to this? How do we create something that allows us to inhabit this? So it's a, it's a real question. And so these, this is the core of what we want to explore in the next, I guess, 16. I thought it would be 15 more, but apparently it's 16 more sessions. H how do we take this tool-using ape, put him into cities of a million, two million, ten million, and get along and be human and understand, you know, what is going on and how we should respond to it? And so as we work through this, I really want to emphasize for, for everyone, try and you know, ask the questions, because we're so often presented with ready-made answers. And that's the end of philosophy. The answer is the end. The question and the opportunity to ask the question, which we're so lucky to have, we get to ask a lot of questions. We're the freest people the world has ever known in many ways. And it's just it's unbelievable benefit for us. Uh, and so we squander it if we always start with answers. But if we can take a moment and just go, oh, you know, what is art for? Right? Why build a pyramid? You know, how, how, how should I live? These core central um, notions only have been asked in this way for, as far as we can tell, 5,000 years. Probably they were asked as long as we get fairly decent sized agriculturally based cities, but that maybe is 10,000 years. Before that, we lived in the patterns and the environment. We didn't feel ourselves separate from it or segregated from it, and therefore totally subjugated to it. This is the animus stage of human development, um, which still exists, by the way. Nothing wrong with animism. But is this is the notion that we're just in this endless chain. I'm subject to the world. The world is not subject to me. And I live in an unbroken harmony until something eats me or I die of old age. And then that's just the cycle of life. 
And that's why you can find, uh, or rarer today, but earlier, um, you would find you know, tribal groups that had lived similarly for tens of thousands of years. Very little change. Because that was the way you lived. But at some point, some of our ancestors started going, huh, what if we took a raft and pushed it out in that water and rode out farther than we can see from the shore? Would we find something? And they said, we don't know. And some stupid, stupid ancestors of ours said, let's find out. <laughs> and some of them apparently hit Australia, which is cool. Uh, some of them hit other places. Some of them hit the Pacific Islands. Look at the Pacific Islands on a map and think, some of our totally stupid ancestors thought, well, let's sail out there and see if we can hit land. That's, that is not smart. Like, even today, people miss those islands and die out in the Pacific Ocean, and they have sat-nav and all kinds of groovy stuff. But when you don't actually know there's islands out there, this is an extraordinary leap into the dark. And so the answers that I said you're not supposed to have, but the first answer I'm going to give you to the first question of what the hell happened is I think we developed the capacity to do really stupid, terrifying shit. I really think that was it. To, to, we, we were able to overcome every natural instinct to do something that said, Okay, this is a great idea. Again, think of the astronauts going to the moon. Here you're on the top of an entirely huge pile of explosives that you're going to light on fire and it's going to launch you to a place where there is no oxygen. And no one's ever done this before. It's going to be great. Right? I think that, that's... That, see, other animals don't do this. Other animals are like, oh no, 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 and no, thanks for the opportunity, right? If you have dogs or cats or anything, to try to get them to do something new, they tend to be very chary of this. They're like, ah, I don't think so. But at some point, we developed the innate capacity to do truly remarkably daft things. And again, that's, think about the, 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 they talk about out of Africa, right? Which is the migration of humanity out of Africa. Those are the stupid people. These are the people who went, what's over there? We don't know, let's go. And then they got further and they said, what's over there? We don't know, let's go. And they always talk about, oh, they crossed the Bering ice sheet and discovered the new world. What? You crossed an ice sheet? Who goes out on an ice sheet? People die today in the, in the North and South Pole. And they have all that cool gear from Patagonia. And they got documentary filmmakers with them. And they die. Those people had none of this. No documentary filmmakers, no cool shit from Patagonia. They just went out there and were like, okay, let's... I mean, how far could the ice go? Come on, Ed, let's go. And they did. And after a while, they went, man, this ice goes a long way. Let's keep going anyway. And then pretty soon, they're like, ooh, it's getting warmer. It's getting warmer. It's getting, man, is it warm. Let's keep going. Ooh, it's getting cooler. It's getting cooler. And they just went all the way down. Ooh, look, jaguars. That's bad. Ooh, tropical diseases. That's not very helpful. And they just kept going into the dark, into that, that leap. And I think that leap is precisely the leap of the philosophical question that says, I don't know, but I want to find out. 
If you need to know, you don't head out with your buddy Ed onto an ice sheet of unknown dimensions with no map, no compass, no freeze-dried food, no nothing. You stay where you are and you do what you've always done. But the ability to stop for a moment and say, you know, I don't know, but I want to find out. I want to find out physically or I want to find out intellectually. I think that's the first big leap. And I think that's really you know, what they all happened about, oh, 50,000 years ago. So thank you. Lecture number one.